Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. On May 25th, 59 prisoners of different races and nationalities began a hunger strike at Represa, California's Folsom State Prison, according to the Stop Mass Incarceration Network. Prisoners' family members and activists demonstrated in front of the prison and at Twin Towers Jail in Los Angeles to draw attention to and obtain broader support for the strike. The hunger strikers say the strike is a response to ongoing mistreatment, dehumanization, and unbearable living conditions at the prison. The strikers issued nine demands. Adequate access to courts and legal assistance, meaningful education, self-help courses, and rehabilitative programs, possession of televisions, exercise equipment and meaningful exercise in the yard, ending cruelty, noise, and sleep deprivation from checks on prisoners' welfare, keeping the original proper packaging for commissary and canteen, non-disciplinary status for qualifying inmates, adequate and appropriate clothing and shoes, and food, bowls, and cups. According to TheIndianaLawyer.com, on June 6, attorneys for inmates of Indiana's Allen County Jail and for the sheriff conferred in federal court about a lawsuit alleging that detainees were denied their right to vote in the 2016 election. The class action suit alleges that the sheriff systematically prevented hundreds of eligible voters held in the jail during the election by refusing to provide them with absentee ballots or other access to the polls. The two plaintiffs claim that the sheriff violated the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. On election day, both were pretrial detainees without felony convictions and therefore eligible to vote. The suit alleges that six to seven hundred people are housed at the Allen County Jail at any given time. Potentially hundreds of people in the jail on election day were eligible to vote, but were prohibited from doing so. On June 13th, in a two-to-one decision, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit eliminated restrictions on how much private companies can charge for in-state prisoner phone calls. The court admitted that costs of such phone calls are, quote, extraordinarily high, unquote. The court noted that a four-minute call could cost as much as $56. However, they determined that the FCC, or Federal Communications Commission, lacked the authority to regulate in-state phone calls from inmates. The FCC's caps on in-state inmate phone calls are allowed to stand, but the June 13th ruling permits companies to set rates for in-state calls as long as they comply with state regulations. The current situation, as prisoner advocates argue, means that inmates and their families are still forced to pay exorbitant amounts for phone calls. In some cases, prisoners and their families are unable to afford communicating by phone at all. Last Sunday, June 11th, Immigration and Customs Enforcement conducted a series of raids in Detroit, arresting more than 50 people, mostly Chaldeans and Iraqis. In response, members of their communities, along with other accomplices, surrounded an arrest van and attempted to prevent the delivery of the arrestees to an immigrant detention center. A participant in the blockade shared this account. The ICE and DHS pigs laughed at the protesters, one even cursing at a family member who was trying to yell to his family who was being detained. As the bus tried to leave, things got heavy, with protesters crowding the bus, attempting to blockade it as it inched forward into Jefferson Avenue. Detroit police and DHS pigs pushed and grabbed protesters, attempting to move them from the front of the bus. 
At various times, they inappropriately grabbed people and tackled numerous people, even shoving a man's face into the ground and screaming into his ear. You could hear people screaming for help from the bus and saying, save us. Several family members were saying that they were facing certain death if they were deported. People chanted, asylum now, ICE get out of town, let them go. At one point, a young woman climbed onto the side of the bus trying to hold hands with her father through the grill surrounding the window. She screamed, I love you daddy, before she was pulled off the bus. Unfortunately, the police were able to escort the van into the immigration prison, completing the raid. This week on KiteLine, we return to the story of Boo Gilkey and its June 2016 death in the Monroe County Jail. Previously, we talked about Boo and the circumstances surrounding his death on KiteLine episode 43, which you can hear on our website. Our episode this week is a conversation with TJ, who was in the dorm with Boo for 10 months and recounts how he experienced his time with Boo and Boo's avoidable death. Here's TJ. We were beyond acquaintances, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we were friends. Because there's some people who take a lot of offense to their to their casework and things like that. Like, and I've been around those people and that didn't take take their things lightly and stuff, you know. And those are people I would consider acquaintances, you know, for the simple fact that I, I knew I couldn't approach a certain subject without there being some type of backlash from it. Whereas in with him, like it was pretty much wide open, game open, you know, game on for the most part. Like I mean, he would he would get me on my stuff, and I'd get him on his stuff. He makes the mistake of he holds a person up on the beeline trail with a BB gun, and a BB gun spends almost two years incarcerated from the age of seventeen, spends eight to nine months of that in twenty three hour lockdown because of his age. So he turns 18, and then for it to end the way it did, and with a week or two weeks left to go before he goes home, I think I broke my heart more than <laughs> I mean, it broke my heart, dude. I mean, because, I mean, it, just the loss of him, period. I mean, because for a, a kid his age, I remember being his age and being incarcerated, you know, in an adult facility, and I didn't have nowhere near the patience or... <laughs> I guess you would say peace that I'd sensed in him, that I, and inside myself, which I've never really had that much peace inside myself, <laughs> hence the incarceration. Yeah. Um, but um, he was, uh, he was okay, you know. Like I mean, he, you know, he, he just he had it in his mind, and the thing was is he had a a, a disease, uh, a hereditary disease called Marfan syndrome, and uh, he talked about it and stuff but he really didn't bring it up a lot because he didn't want to be treated different than anybody else and he made that clear you know because like sometimes we get to playing around and stuff like that and technically he wasn't supposed to do any of that because he wasn't allowed to put any stress or anything else like on his body for the simple fact that what happened to him could happen to him you know we get to playing around and i'd be like oh man i'm sorry you know i'd be like i didn't mean to like you know do that or whatever and he's like man he's quit man he's like He's like, man, he's like, if I thought it was too much, he's like, I'd tell you, you know, and I was like, all right, you know, I was like, man, I'm just saying, like, I don't want to end up hurting, I don't want to be that, I don't want to hurt you, you know what I'm saying, like, I'm playing around or whatever. And I was actually the person who reached down and um, put my fingers on his neck and checked for breath and stuff. Um, 
which I couldn't feel a pulse at his wrist or his throat, um, nor could I feel really feel any breath. And he was real cold. Like it was cold and clammy. His his body was, and I'm trying to process that. And the first two people that they took out and stuck in isolation was myself and a gentleman that knows his mom and stuff. And the nurse then comes along and asks us, you know, she's like, well, what's, what's this about Marfan syndrome? And what, what is this? And what, you know, and you sure it wasn't something else like drugs or anything else like that? I was like, no, like it was not any drugs. I mean, we were in an isolated part of the jail anyways. And for us to get any type of contraband and stuff down there was almost impossible. I mean, in the entire year, I spent a year in the in the recovery dorm, and in that year, I seen contraband once. There's a there was a, you know twelve of us in the dorm at any given time, and uh, when you've I think there was eleven of us at the, in the dorm at the time that Boo passed, and um, the thing was is you had nine out of ten of us telling you that because Boo couldn't say anything. You know, or 11 out of us, 11 or 10 out of 11 of us telling him that, you know, we all we were, how we had done was popped a socket to try to make some homemade tattoo ink. Because that's when Boo was wanting to tattoo Boo on him, you know, his and, and stuff. And, um, and uh, we had been drawing up some things and stuff, you know, just trying to express our artistic side of ourselves and stuff. And I mean, you know, and pick tattoos is just, it's a common thing with incarceration anyways I mean it's something the past time and it takes a long time to do certain tattoo work and stuff like that so it's it's just a way to pass time you know and get over the mundaneness of being stuck in a little tiny room all day every day and stuff because they weren't really all that adept in coming to grab us for outside recreation or any type of recreation period because of our schedule and stuff like that. We were always told, oh, you're on this shift schedule or that shift schedule. And more often than not, we were just stuck. <laughs> Even having heard that from the majority of us, they still felt the need to completely and totally destroy our living quarters. Um, they took all of our reading material, I mean, besides the, the dorm material, to come back and have that, our bed sheets, our bed clothes, our our clothes, our <laughs> our pictures, our everything that was anything to any of us, you know, because I, mean, I mean we don't have much in there that we can claim as our our, our own that we can hold on to, just tossed about randomly and just with all kind like with dried up toothpaste that we'd use to stick pictures in the wall, like it had been scraped off all onto our bunks and stuff and. So not only were we dealing with that, and then for the sergeant to come in like shortly thereafter because some of us were missing some of our eating utensils and drinking utensils and stuff, and for him to scream at us and tell us to quit being whiny little and to suck it up, you know, that, you know, we'll, you know, figure it out, basically, you know, it's just like, and then the another little another gentleman that was in there that was really close to Boo because they were like close in age and stuff and they knew a lot of the same people from the street to have him they didn't even bring him back in the dorm right away because they were assuming that those two were smoking spice together and that he had done something to Boo so they had him isolated downstairs in another in a in a what we call the drunk tank because he was a juvenile so he wasn't allowed to go upstairs to population anyways and everything until he turned eighteen. Thank you.
just like earlier that day, like I was playing around with Boo and like playing crazy peekaboo over the wall with him, like like ducking up and down, just being being ignorant and like. And then like what happened to him is like it was one of my worst fears, you know. And that is is to you know be that close to home and to find myself. Or, you know, or someone that I was, I felt close to or, you know, or I felt akin to passing, like passing, I started basically dying inside of this jail away from family and friends and stuff. And not only that, where he died at, because it was in our restroom and he had fell in between the toilet and the wall. And that's where we found him at. And it was just like. Yeah, I mean, I I felt for him and I felt for his family because I was just like, man, that that's just. I, I think my heart broke a lot more for that aspect of it because he was so excited about going home in a couple weeks because he'd been incarcerated for almost two years, um, mainly for simple fact that he wasn't talking about his case to the prosecutors or the judge or any anybody of that nature, so they um, weren't really cutting him any slack, and kind of playing hardball with him like he finally had gotten around to where he was going to be going home and with his mom and his brother had just gotten out of juvenile detention and everything and I mean it was just so like it's just like why and kind of like we, a lot of us like I mean we we prayed we shed tears for him um and going through his stuff and like they left his shoes on the floor in the dorm like after they tossed everything they even left his shoes like where he had fell and the shoes had come off they left his shoes laying on the floor they didn't pack up his bunk or do anything else like that we packed up his materials and stuff for his uh for his parents or his mom or whoever to come by and grab it or for it to be given to one of the volunteers that came in to give to his parents like and we had just started getting him to really like because he was a real quiet person and uh, we had went through a, a couple of classes of uh, public speaking classes we had gotten him to start opening up and sharing like because he he wrote rhymes and he rapped and the thing was is he was really good and but as most artists are and myself being a poet like you're really critical of your own work and of course he thought you know like well it could be better or it's not good enough and we're like man like dude that's on par with what we're hearing you know on cds and musicians and stuff that are out now and like we started telling him like man like like dude like stop like you're, you're awesome dude like you know like like spit another rhyme to us like we you know we like encouraging him and stuff and we got to the point to where like um cause i do i'm a drummer so like, you know, start tapping out beats on the table and stuff like that and getting to start rapping his stuff to us and everything. And, and, of course, for most, you know, people his age, which, I mean, he was, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, <laughs> a lot of it was gratuitous, you know, but like rap music and stuff. But, I mean, that's just what he was used to. You know, you know I mean, it's, I mean, I listen to it too, so I can't say anything. <laughs> We just like, I mean, just like it just like we just started seeing this whole entire other side of him, especially after his plea bargain and finally came through. Like, all of a sudden, he was just like this, like his cocoon had come off, and he's like this, like he's starting to spread his wings. Like, look, like now I'm so happy, like, I don't care what any of you think, like, hear me, <laughs> you know. It's like, all right, man, cool, you know, it's like, that's awesome. And 
just to have the rug yanked out from underneath him just that quick. And, um, like, we were on the door. I was yelling at the COs, telling them, like, hey, man, I was like, he's not breathing. I can't feel his heartbeat. I was like, you need a, you need a defib machine, something. I was like, you need to get in here now. And they come in and stare at him for about a minute before they start to, um, to try to perform, like, CPR or anything else like that on him because they put the – you know, putting the machine on him, and the machine unfortunately talks, and we were all dead quiet because they put us on our bunks while they were in there, and we heard the machine say, "Faint heartbeat detected. Do not shock." And that, I mean, of course, that gave me a glimmer of hope. And that was like one of the last things I remember hearing before they put it, because then they took us all out of there. They took me and the one gentleman out, and then they started separating us all up because they wanted the, the detectives to come talk to us to find out what had happened. And, like, I was one of the first ones down there to the detectives, and I told them, I was like, look, I was like, I'm, I said, before you guys even jump to any conclusions, I was like, we were making homemade tattoo ink, we were going to do pick tattoos. I was like, I showed the other young kid how to pop a socket to get a, a flame to light a candle, which we use hair grease, and whenever you burn it and you stick it in the toilet paper holder on the, on the toilet, and you cover it and it makes soot, which that soot then mixed with shampoo and uh, toothpaste and things like that, then makes the tattooing. You can burn checker pieces. I mean, anything that basically can be burnt to make soot, but the, but the hair grease is the best way to go for the simple fact that it's, it doesn't make a whole lot of stink. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a few melt chest pieces, things like that, you end up with little black floaties in there. Yeah, <laughs> and it yeah. stinks horribly bad. Yeah. And it kind of sets off alarms for the COs too. Like they, I mean, for, I mean, they was like literally outside of our door and we're burning this candle and it's so non-descript in its smell that they couldn't even smell that it was burning in there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and we had this gap underneath our door. So, I mean, it wasn't like we didn't have airflow and mm -hmm. stuff. And um, we'd done it a couple times before that and gotten away with it. And of course, them two being the youngest ones in there, you know, real antsy and stuff about wanting to get tattoo ink and this that and the other so of course uh, me being the person that knows how to pop the socket because at that point in time I mean other people knew how to do it but they were like man I ain't touching it I ain't getting in trouble this I was like man I was like what? I was like man what are they gonna do put you in jail <laughs> you know like I mean that was my attitude about the situation I mean the part of me was like you know I don't want to get in trouble for it but at the same time I was I was getting to the point in my incarceration uh, where I was kind of aggravated and tired and stuff and wanted the change and stuff so I didn't care whether or not I got caught so I never never even heard of Marfan syndrome and I mean just that alone right there was an educational moment for me to be incarcerated with someone of you know that had that and for him to talk about it, and like then we got this we even went to the library and got this medical journal and stuff and like looked it up and researched it you know and like spent time like figuring out you know things you know for him because he wasn't and that's one of the things that aggravated me because the nurse was like oh, I never even heard about it and I'm sitting there thinking to myself like I don't know how you couldn't have known about it because whenever we're booked into the jail one of the releases that you guys have us sign is for medical records and you can't tell me that none of his other doctors didn't send you one single medical record that said he had Mar that he didn't have Marfan syndrome yeah and She's like, well, he never said anything to me about it. He shouldn't have had to say anything to you about it. Yeah. 
of course, the first time I popped the socket, I, it was an educational moment, me teaching the other young gentlemen how to do it, but at the same time, them getting a light. Well, they had it lit for a second, then it went out, and that's what Boo was standing back there still holding on to the candle, waiting on him to go and pop the socket again. The other gentleman that uh, knew his mom was laying next to me, and he got to go use the restroom, and he's like, and I heard him saying, saying boo like you know and he's like man he's like so man he's like holler at the COs he's like he's passed out or he fainted or something we thought he just we thought he'd fainted I know he'd mentioned once before about uh he had almost like a fainting spell whenever he was in the 23-hour lockdown and he'd fell and smacked his head on a door I mean the only thing about his his death was what was in the newspaper or on the online newspaper where it talked about you know 19 year old Clinton Gilkey you know, passing away from a medical incident inside the Monroe County Jail. Like, the jail commander didn't even really say anything to us. I mean, like I said, the third shift sergeant, he, I mean, he screamed at us about, you know, our utensils and stuff. Because we, I mean, because not only did we just deal with, you know, because we were told by the detectives after, as we were interviewing with them that, you know, I asked, I asked the detective, I was like, I was like, can I ask you a question? I was like, and please, I was like, I was like, I just want to know. I was like, did he make it? I was like, is he is is he alive? And she's like, I'm sorry. She's like, but no. I cried over it because I mean, at this point in juncture, at, at this time, like I had been in the dorm for a year, and for almost ten months out of that year, he was a, a neighbor to me. He slept in the bunk across from me. I played cards with this gentleman. I I rolled dice with this gentleman. I watched TV shows with this guy. I watched movies with him. We talked about family. We talked about dreams, hopes, all this stuff. And to be honest, like, I mean, even him being younger than me, sometimes I could draw strength off of his peace. I mean, the, like I said, I mean, the peace inside this kid was just unreal. And I mean, it was like, I mean, he was, he was like, just calm constantly. You know, he's like, he's like, shoot. He's like, man, he's like, go home. He's like, why? He's like, my mom don't bring me biscuits and gravy in bed, you know? <laughs> Uh, he used to say it all the time. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I know I'm getting it at least once a week. He's like, they're gonna bring it right to me. <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah. I, said, I never really thought about it that way. I was like, I guess. I said, but I, I'd still prefer to get up and go get my own biscuits and gravy at home, you know. But like they always say, look for the silver lining and things. And like, even if it was just something small, like he found it. Like in that in that aspect, like he would voice it as and like you know like well, they bring me biscuits and gravy to the door or you know what I'm saying I got free cable TV I got air conditioning I've got this and I mean for all I know these are things that he never had at home. This is the only way I was able to process it really, and that was be like you know that they have their job and they're kind of like a a 24-hour business there. So they have to follow their protocols and do their things 24-7, regardless of whatever happens. They have to continue rolling no matter what. They can't shut down everything, you know, which, I mean, I wasn't expecting them to be like, you know, nobody in jail could have visits or do this or do that because, you know, this happened or whatever. But some type of acknowledgement, you know, from, I mean, hell, just send us a piece of cake in or something on a tray, you know I mean? Even, you know, be like, you know, here, sorry for your loss. Here's... Here's some upside down pineapple cake, you know, guys, you know, like, sorry about it, sorry about it. Or to come in and try to, uh, you know, talk to us, or just to even, like, and the, the, he's like, well, if you guys have any issues, uh, write the, the, the jail 
counselor or psychiatrist guy or whatever. And the thing was is I'd fill out a thing for him, and it took him two months to come see me. Like, and he's just like, oh, well, you know, you're just going to have to cope. I'm like, uh, what do you think I've been doing? They're not equipped to to offer any type of grief counseling. Like, we couldn't, we couldn't even get an apology for the way we were treated in that situation, you know what I mean? Like, basically, they made an assumption of what happened, and that's what had to have happened, and there wasn't nothing that all of us could say that changed their minds in that aspect. And they didn't even, I think only one of the COs or two, maybe two, one or two COs, correctional officers that were there, stopped by and offered their condolences to us and stuff about the situation. It was, I mean, regardless of him being incarcerated, it was still the loss of a human life that needed not be lost. People make mistakes, but I mean, a person's not their mistakes. That's not a, that's not a sum of who they are. And the thing was, is like, after the time that he spent incarcerated, that Boo did, because I mean, two years in a county jail is a long, because I mean, I've been the, I've been in county jails and I've been in prison. Prisons, like, depending on the prison you go to, like, I've been in a couple rough ones, <laughs> but compared to county jail, it's like, it's, it's a heck of a lot better. The commissary is a lot cheaper. You get two-hour contact visits. Your people can bring money up there and buy you 20-ounce pops and sandwiches and candy and all kinds of just lovely things, <laughs> you know, that you don't get in the kind. Plus, you're outside all the time. You get jobs to go work and stuff, whether it be in a kitchen or uh, at the one prison. I, was at, I went and worked at a state park. County jail, like, because in Monroe County Jail, like, your outside time there is a little box that's on top of the jail. You look out of a mesh fence through into the sky. You don't see cars. You don't see people. Your visits are on a video screen. So, like, whenever you're talking to people, more often than not, they're not even looking at you in the eye because they're looking out at the video screen looking at you. Like with Boo and everything else, like his, I remember his mom coming down to see him and stuff and, like, He's like, man, my little, I keep get off the bus. He's like, my little brother just got out of juvie and this, that, whatever. You know, he's like, I'm so excited. He's like, I can't wait to get home. See, he, you know, he's like, yeah, you got little, you know, bigger than I am now. You know, this, that, whatever. And I'm just like, and see, he was like, and that's another thing too. He was really tall. Like that was another side effect of the Marfan syndrome. He was like six four, six five, and about yay bigger around. Like I mean, he was just sinewy, like tendons and long stringy muscle and. I remember him trying to like exercise and lift the bag with us. I'd be like, man, quit, man. Like, you're going to end up hurting yourself, you know? And he'd be like, like man, whatever, I ain't going to hurt myself. I'm trying to get big. Like, I'm like, man. <laughs> and he goes, you know, and that being, which I, I get it, you know? I mean, you don't want to be, just like I don't want to be viewed as a felon my whole entire life, as, you know, because that's something that I have done and have been. He didn't want to be viewed as a Marfan patient constantly you know what I'm saying like he wanted to be normal I mean he's like don't worry about all that other stuff he's like just just you know treat me like you would anybody else like he got to playing around with us one time we got to wrestling around stuff the CEOs thought we were having a riot or whatever downstairs which was funny because we were playing around and they like they were play like acting like they were kicking each other so like somebody went like somebody they picked one guy up dropped him on the floor and act like he was kicking him and stuff and they all come flying in there and 
like, what's going on? Like, uh, when we all just busted out laughing. I was like, man, y'all, and you, <laughs> you guys are stupid if you really think we're down here fighting like that, you know? So we do realize that this interview ends abruptly, as did Boo's life. We hope that it provides at least some insight into Boo as a person and reminds us that these systems do need to change in order to prevent more avoidable deaths. Thanks to TJ for sharing his experiences with us. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.